This is HPR episode 2240 entitled Amateur Radio Roundtable. It is hosted by various hosts and is about 54 minutes long and carries a clean flag. The summary is HPR community hams get together to talk about ham radio. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hacker Public Radio. Uh, this is the amateur radio roundtable that uh, was discussed on the mailing list, and we're just going to go through the Rumble channel here and introduce ourselves. Uh, I'm Christopher Hobbs. Done a couple of episodes here on Hacker Public Radio. My call sign is KD5RYO. I'm a technician class uh, amateur radio operator here in the United States. Hello, everybody. I'm John. Uh, my amateur radio call sign is Kilo Tango 4 Kilo Bravo. I'm a, a U.S. advanced call sign, a rare breed. There's not a lot of us left. I, I currently have only participated in the uh, New Year's Eve uh, and uh, community news. I've never done a episode on my own, but uh, I'm a 20 plus year amateur radio operator and uh it's one of my uh, favorite hobbies all right well my name is steve uh call sign is kd0 ijp and i live in south central kansas in the united states i'm currently a general class uh licensed amateur um been licensed for uh, i think five or six years now and I've done a couple other Hacker Public Radio episodes um, in the last uh, year or so. So uh, that's me. Yeah, and that's me. That's Michael Delta Lima for Mike Golf Mike. <coughs> uh, doing the, the European part here. I'm licensed since a little bit over 25 years now. I live in southern Germany and... Let's see what this this roundtable gets us to. I'm Tyrell Dennison. I'll sign KG5RHT. About as fresh as they get. I got my ticket over the weekend. Um, participated in my first net just earlier tonight. And now I sit here excited to ask you guys all kinds of fun questions and uh, learn more about the hobby that I've just joined. That will be excellent. And congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah, congratulations to your new license. It's it's great to have new blood here. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. And uh, I wish we had more of a European contingency because there were a lot of questions about the rules. Uh, and I guess I should mention, too, that I've been licensed since about t 2003 with a couple-year break. Um, but I've got my original call sign back. 
Um, speaking of the questions from the list, uh, I only was able to come up with two questions. The first big question uh, that spawned a lot of discussion was from Claw 2, uh, which is, how do I get started? And then that yielded all of the discussion uh, about, um, you know, what do you want to do, uh, different license classes, what it's like in different countries. So I figured we could discuss that. And then the second most popular question, I guess the only other question, was from Tech Libre, which was, uh, why do I need a license, and what happens if I operate without one? So uh, why don't we start with Klaatu's question, and then we can move into the others. Uh, I'm interested to hear what you guys think is the best way to get rolling with everything. My advice was to, number one, decide what you want to do, and then number two, find a club to operate with, uh, or not operate with, but to uh, learn from. Uh, but that just opened a giant can of worms. So uh, I guess from both US-centric and European-centric perspectives, um, what do you guys think the best way uh, to obtain one's ticket is, the, the, the easiest path to that? Are we talking about how to get the ticket or how to, to get your first setup once you, you have it? How to get the ticket. This is somebody who has never uh, known anything about the hobby at all. I mean, it was the reason why we started this roundtable to begin with. Yeah, just to answer questions, I was not, not able, uh, I felt not, not up to uh, doing it alone and, and I needed reinforcement. I guess I can probably speak. Uh, this is one thing that I'll actually have some authority in, having just taken my test less than a month ago. Um, as far as resources, there's all kinds of materials. There's books, a book, no nonsense technician class test prep. Listen to that nonstop for about a month, driving my family crazy. They didn't get radio time when they were in the car with me. It was all about prepping for my test. And I read, read through um, the ARRL prep, prep book, listened to the audio book. That for about a month, and started taking tests. They have uh, apps or places online. The ARRL, ARRL website allow you to take practice tests. And um, got very quickly to the point where I could complete those after having listened to the book once and, and been actively reading was testing and passing quite frequently, well, regularly. Once I started passing, I didn't stop, fortunately. Um, I say all that with the caveat of saying, I, going coming into amateur radio, I already had experience with sound equipment, having worked as an audio engineer in, uh, in live audio. I was a bit of a musician for a while. Um, I also worked for a radio station, so that helped. While I was there, I got my my wings with a soldering iron and electrical components, putting tables together, replacing blown capacitors and old radio equipment. And so I had some experience coming into it that probably gave me more of an edge when it came to getting getting comfortable quickly and passing those tests quickly. Um, but if you're a hobbyist at all that's done anything with electrical work or sound equipment or anything like that, You should take to it pretty simple, especially if you'll put in the time to read, take the practice tests. And I really can't stress enough how valuable having that audio book was for me. Um, just being able to, while I was driving, I'm also a bit of a runner. So while I was out running, 
I was just listening to that and getting all of the stuff that you just really have to have memorized and ready to pull out in that test situation into my head so that I was good to go. And uh, yeah, passed the first time, January 2nd, and the FCC granted me my license uh, a week ago tomorrow, so last Friday. Well, I, my- can already, I can hear Ken asking, what's the ARL? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, that would be... Does anybody got that off the top of head? It's the yeah. Amateur Radio Relay League. That's the one. That's the United States uh, uh, organization or uh, that uh, centers on amateur radio in the United States. What I was going to uh, add is if you're in the United States, if you go to www.arrl.org, And uh, uh, off the home page, there there's a uh, a button that talks about licensing, education, and training, uh, and how to get your license. A listing of clubs in your you know in your general area. Uh, in other countries, the best thing is to you know do your DuckDuckGo or or Google search for amateur or ham radio and your your country and you will uh uh probably within one or two clicks uh be on a similar page for for the country that you're in yeah i'd say that's a pretty good uh pretty good advice there on from both of you i was just going to break it down just a slight bit and and just simply say that at least in the United States if you want to become an amateur radio operator all you really have to do is pass the test and make an application to the FCC that's the mechanics of it and um, so the way you go about doing that is you find a testing session and as John said you know you can go to the ARRL website or other websites and do a search on where a testing session is going to be in your area and because uh, all of the testing is done by volunteer examiners and so you'll find them all over and then you just go there you take the test you fill out the application they send it into the FCC for you and then a few weeks later you get your call sign and that's really all there is to actually going about getting the license mm. What you do with it then afterwards, of course, is the next step. That's that's an excellent addition, and I'm glad you guys mentioned the ARL. Um, it, when I first received my license back in 2003, I had hams around me, so they kind of coaxed me into it. And when I let my license lapse and went back to get another license, um, it, it, I had trouble figuring out if there was any activity in the area, and the ARRL website was how I found the local club where the volunteer exam coordinator was and where I got my technician exam uh, scheduled and where I tested. And that brings up another point uh, that in the United States there are three levels of licensing at the moment. There are other levels that you cannot get any longer uh, with our advanced friend John here. 
but there is, at the moment, the technician class, general class, and extra class licenses. Each come with different privileges, and I think it's probably fair to say that most hams start, in, at least in the U.S., with the technician class privileges. I'm not sure what the uh, different classes are around the world, though. Yeah, here in Germany, we also have uh, entry-level classes, which are a little bit easier to obtain. And then you you <coughs> learn and, and update your license to have full access to all the bands allowed. One other, thing I, one other thing I was going to mention, um, you, uh, one of you mentioned that you let your license lapse. Um, I did that too, actually. Um, and, and the way that works in the U.S. anyways, at least the way it is now, is once you are licensed, that license is good for 10 years. And after 10 years, you have to renew it. And it, there's nothing you have to do, no test you have to take. You just have to say, I want to renew it. But if you don't do that, then you get a two-year grace period. And if you don't do anything within those two years, then your license is expired. And if you want a license again, then you have to start over. And uh, I actually went through that process as well um, a number of years ago. Yeah, and, uh, an important point point to raise with that too is we have these call signs, and there are these call signs are not us; they are our station identifiers. When your license expires and is lapsed, you no longer have your call sign. So then you'll have to do like I did and file for a vanity call sign to get your old call sign back. So my call sign when I first uh, tested was Kilo Delta 5 Romeo Yankee Oscar, which is what I have now. Uh, when it finally expired, they assigned me uh, Kilo Golf 5 Quebec Delta Quebec. Uh, didn't care for that and filed for a vanity call. And within about a month, I had my old call sign back. It was available. Nobody else had taken it. So that's another point to bring up, I guess, is if you do get your license and you don't like your call sign, at least in the United States, you can file for almost anything you want. Yeah, similar here. You, you can get a, a special call sign or something you, you like, but once you have it and you normally, until you upgrade, you keep it. Yeah, I think that's the difference. At least currently in the U.S., you can, I don't know if there's any minimum time that you have to keep a license. I think you can keep applying for vanity call signs until you get the one that you really like. Uh, at least I know some people that have changed call signs oh, two or three times in a two or three month period, which I don't quite understand, but nonetheless, uh, it is possible. Yes, don't get me started on, on that. Yeah, it's hard to keep up with people sometimes. We get so accustomed to these uh, stations being the actual people and And, uh, you know, that's another good point to mention. Um, if you are not licensed, uh, again, speaking from the United States-centric uh, viewpoint here, if you can find uh, an amateur radio event in your area, and probably the best one for a lot of people is if you can find a field day event, um, you can operate under somebody else's call as long as they're present there with you at the radio. So... If you manage to find a club and you're not sure if you want to get your license, you could reach out and contact that club, and they're often very 
supportive of um, people looking to get into the hobby and you may be able to join them at one of their events and get some time in on the air before ever acquiring your license. Yeah, things have, have been relaxed a little bit in, on our side. <clears throat> There are at least greeting messages allowed from, from non-licensed people uh, to, to say at least hello. And uh, there are educational call signs. So someone can apply for a educational call sign that's... I, uh, I'm missing the prefix right now. Uh, and they, those are intended for people who are preparing for a, uh, a test and they can use this call sign in the presence of the of the call sign holder to do radio contacts as a sort of learning experience. Well, since we're talking about how you go about getting your license, one of the things I was going to mention is, is just as a piece of advice for somebody out there considering it. You know, the hobby of amateur radio is huge. There's many, many different things you can do, and it can get overwhelming. And so one of the pieces of advice, of advice that I give to people is don't try to figure it all out before you go get your license. You, you'll probably never do it. So, you know, once you decide, yeah, I think I want to try, you know, become an amateur radio operator, study for your test, go find a testing um, location, um, take your test, get your license, and then, you know, find other people that can help you figure out what it is you want to do. Don't try to figure it all out ahead of time or you'll never do it. I think that's great advice. Um, I, I yammered off a huge list in the thread on the mailing list of things you can do, and it occurred to me as I was going through some of the testing material that you'll learn about various things that you can do through that. Uh, and you, you made a good point, too, about uh, finding someone to help you. Uh, in the hobby, we generally call that an Elmer, right? Um, I, I never really had an Elmer, and they're kind of hard to find in my region, but this concept of sort of a mentor guiding you through the hobby Uh, and helping you find what you want to do. The the other thing that can really help with that is if you do find a club, you know, and usually if you find your volunteer exam coordinator, you will find a club. Um, a lot of clubs are typically focused on a particular activity. You know, here we have a UHF society, and we have um, uh, there's a uh, there there's a couple of groups that do emergency communications and. Uh, at one point, there was a group that was doing DXing, uh, which is making long-distance contacts. Um, if you find one of those groups, you may find that you enjoy what they're doing, and then you can get your advice from them and figure out what to do from there, uh, which, which also goes into the question that was asked, you know, how do you pick your equipment? I think you kind of pick your equipment based on the direction you've chosen in the hobby as well. So, yeah, it is a vast vast hobby a lot of things to get into yeah i think amateur radio is the most most diverse hobby you can ever ever choose because there's so many aspects and they are all under the umbrella of amateur radio so if you take people playing with microcontrollers playing with quadcopters or whatever you can find those things all under the umbrella of amateur radio in an amateur radio context And I, I think getting in touch with the club and also for a first station setup, whatever brings you in contact with the locals is, the, is, is a good choice for a starting 
radio equipment. If you are in a densely populated area where you have repeater stations on VHF, UHF uh, frequencies, you can reach with a handy talkie, then this would be a great station to, to start to get you just in contact with the local people and then find out what they do, what, what interests you. And if you are in a widespread country, it might, might be shortwave on, on some frequency to get, get in touch with those people. But I think whatever, whatever gets you in, in, in touch with the, with the locals is a good, good starting point. Well, to add a little bit to what uh, Chris said there about, um, you know, getting involved with the club, you know, one of the hardest things, at least for me, I think this is a personality thing, but at least for me, I mean, when I first got my license, I had a, I got a radio and I was, I was kind of scared to talk at the radio. I mean, I didn't know what to do and anything like that. And so one of the things that you'll find is in a lot of areas, there's like organized nets. In fact, I think Tyrell may have said something about uh, the fact that he uh, checked into his first net. And that's basically just an organized get-together over the air where usually somebody kind of leads the net and people can check in and talk and, and, and everything. And it's just helps you relax a little bit and you can listen to what other people are doing and then you can kind of follow suit and uh, and go that way. Another thing, the local club that I'm a member of here in South Central Kansas, we do a lot of communications for things like bike rides, um, bike rides for, you know, raising money for some things. And so then we do communications for that. And again, that's an organized um you know, event where you can really learn a lot about operating uh, by watching what other people are doing and uh, and then following suit. Yeah, club stations are a great way to get get into into operation. I remember my first Morse code uh, contact after after I got my my license to do Morse code, and I <coughs> was basically keying in. On the transmitter side, what, what the other guy wrote on the, on the sheet of paper, because I was far too nervous to, to do it on my own. At least the first contact, the second one was, was uh, my own. And so I got with a holding hand and uh, got into it. Well, it, there is a lot of protocol on the radio. And I think uh, the word that was said over and over, over that makes the most sense is listen. Uh, when you do finally get your radio, and you're trying to participate in one of the many activities, uh, always listen for a while before you jump in. Um, listen to a net or listen to a conversation or something of that nature. And, Michael, if it makes you feel any better, I've been doing uh, both satellite and uh, CW for years, and I still write down everything. <laughs> I write scripts down constantly, so uh, don't the there's just often a lot to remember so i can't always keep it in my head and i still get a little mic shy that's that's another good thing to bring up sometimes it's a little uh you may get a little nervous it's a little scary talking on the radio but everybody is so friendly and if you commit a faux pas or something like that people rarely ever berate you and if they do you can just turn the vfo knob and move on to another place people are always willing to help it seems What's CW? What's a VFO? 
But uh, good point. So CW, I believe, is abbreviation for carrier wave, but we're talking about Morse code here, international Morse. And then VFO is a variable frequency oscillator. It is the knob you use to change the frequency you are currently listening to or transmitting on or both depending on your radio setup. Yeah, I think VFO is just the the, the mode of, of most modern radio equipment where you can con continuously in some increments change the frequency as opposed to to memory mode where you normally have stored fixed channels and and cw i think it's continuous wave and i was always wondering why is it continuous wave if you key it it's it turned on and off does anybody know for sure why it's called continuous wave it's a continuous carrier when it's on it's it's It does not uh, oscill It does not oscillate. Uh, it is not. Uh, uh, shoot, what's the word? Um, uh, modulated. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the issue. You're not you're not modulating the carrier. You're just turning the carrier on and off. Yeah, I think it comes from from the very very old days. Uh, as a contrast to Spark, which was not so continuous the wave because you have the, the spark triggering the the oscillation and then it it tapers down until the next spark reignites it so i think the the continuous wave is continuous while keyed down and and not so so variable as a spark generated signal we should probably talk a little bit we mentioned cw and that's that's just a, a name that we use for morse code um It used to be in the United States, at least, uh, when you got your even your very basic level ham radio license, you had to know Morse code. You had to pass a Morse code test, five words per minute, if I remember right. And in fact, I had to do that the first time I got a license. That's no longer the case. And uh, you can get into a lot of arguments as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But um, it used to be that people were maybe a little bit frightened of getting a ham license because they had to learn Morse code. That's not the case here anymore. I'm curious, uh, over in Germany, do you have to uh, have to learn Morse at all? No, no, no longer. So when I started, there was a, a basic VHF, UHF license starting at, at two meters, which is 144 megahertz and higher frequencies, which did not require Morse code. And if you wanted to go on, on shortwave frequencies uh, below 30 megahertz, you needed Morse code in, in two, two speeds. One would was 30 letters per minute, which would be about five words per minute. And the, the full license, which allows allowed access to all, all frequencies and, and the higher output power was uh, 10 words per minute. But it has has been dropped since since then. Well, we just that brought brings up, a couple up why oh, I have. Uh, oh, uh, <laughs> that brings up why I am still and uh, have the advanced uh, license. Uh, I'm an I'm an old guy, and when people look look at look me up on a uh, a website called qrz.com. They see it's an advanced call sign. It means I'm a dinosaur, but it also means that I passed 13 words a minute all those years ago. I actually uh, 
never did pass 20. I tried a couple times, but uh, I was having too much fun on the air with the privileges I had. But uh, uh, the funny thing is, hated learning Morse code. And uh, once I started doing it, I actually have uh, always enjoyed it. It took a while, but once I got it, I enjoyed it. Now, I, I don't use much of it. I, I use uh, what we call digital modes. I like to use my computer to do my talking. So since we're bringing up more acronyms here, just let me say that VHF is very high frequency, UHF is ultra high frequency, and those are pretty common uh, for short-range communication. I'm just going to be as simple as possible with it. And then we also will probably talk a little bit and have talked a little bit about high frequency shortwave being included in that, and that, and that usually goes a little bit further. Um, also, I guess since we're jumping into um, different modes of operations, why don't we talk a little bit about what each one of us do? Because we, we have a pretty vast uh, experience set here, it seems. So why don't we talk a little bit about the modes of operation that we like to use um, and just kind of go down the list. Uh, so for me, um, I'm interested in CW. I, I got my license before, or I'm sorry, after the CW requirement was lifted because it was a deterrent for me. But like a lot of others, I'm finding Morse code as an enjoyable aspect of the hobby. So I like to do QRP or low power uh, Morse code. I also like to work satellites. I like to bounce my radio signals off of satellites and talk to other people. And um, I tend to do just terrestrial repeater type things. Um, so why don't we move down the list and see what everybody enjoys doing. All righty. Well, I'll, I'll jump in. I uh, have done everything from bounce signals off of satellites um, off of uh, meteorites, and uh, uh, I do most of what we call work on uh, the digital modes where you're using a computer to generate uh, tones and put them out over the airwaves um, to communicate with uh, low power uh, I currently have worked over a hundred different countries on almost every band that uh, amateur radio has uh, 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 privileges in, except for, uh, well, from 80 meters all the way, which is uh, the, they call it, well, I should, <laughs> I should have wrote everything down, but uh I am uh, uh, have always been Mike shy uh, from the time I started in the hobby, and I do much better uh, using uh, something other than my voice to communicate. But uh, um, I could go probably for hours on uh, uh, the fun stuff that I've done and uh, the people I've communicated with from astronauts uh, to uh, oh, you name it. Uh, I'm a uh, very much a, uh, a big advocate of just sticking your feet in the water and trying a little bit of everything. And there's a lot to try. 
Wow, that's a good summary there. Um, as far as myself, um, I have not learned uh, CW or Morse code, so I haven't done any of that work, although it's on my list of things I'd like to do uh, someday. Uh, most of the work that I do um, is local repeater type stuff, um, which this would be the, what Chris was saying, the UHF and VHF uh, frequencies, uh, where there's a, a repeater that's local or not too far away. And so when I talk, the repeater hears me and then repeats what I've said to anybody listening, basically. And it's a way that uh, a lot of local communication is done. And so I do quite a bit on that uh, with nets and things like that. And then I've also done a fair amount of HF work, which is the high frequency, uh, mostly in the 20-meter band, some in the 40-meter band. And that's where you can talk, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away. And I've uh, talked to most of the states in the U.S. and a few European countries as well. Yeah, okay. So I would not have learned uh, Morse code if I wouldn't have had to. But I, I like it. I'm not particularly good at it. But when I am doing uh, contact on the, on the shortwave bands, which is embarrassingly uh, rare, then I try to do it in, in Morse code. And uh, these are normally some field day activities uh, during several events uh, in the year, but but not really much from from home. And the the most active part right now is amateur radio direction finding, where I take take part in local local competitions quite frequently. I do normal local local repeater stuff talking on on the local frequencies directly to to club members and so on and uh, that's basically it so i like i mentioned i've just gotten on the radio yet other than that's what we call phone which is just talking talking into my my radio and listen to other people that way as opposed to working with CW and Morse code or doing stuff with digital. I'm excited to do both. Um, like Chris had mentioned, got interested in amateur radio years ago when there was that required test for CW and just was intimidated by having to take a test on Morse code. So, so I never got it. And when it came back around uh, to be of, of interest to me this time, that with that being lifted, I was much happier to go take that test and, and pass it. And then I'm actually interested in doing things like Morse code now. I'm uh, just barely in the process of, of starting to learn my, my Morse code alphabet so I can do CW and send that further. And then digital stuff as well. Uh, John, I'm excited to of the stuff that you've been able to do doing the digital modes because I've, I've just begun to kind of understand what's possible with that. Um, another interesting thing that I've heard about would be um, they call them fox hunts where they'll take a transmitter and I don't know that any of the clubs around here do this. If not, I'd love to be someone to help initiate that. Take a transmitter and hide it in in the region and everybody 
tries to track down that transmitter by listening and uh, heading in that direction. And basically kind of like uh, anyone is familiar with geocaching, you like geocaching, but instead of using GPS coordinates, you're using your highly directional radio to, to locate the device. Things like that sound really fun. I've also got two young boys, sons and a daughter that, really glad to get involved in the hobby of introducing them to things like this so that they at a young age uh, so those are kind of where my interests lie or my interests then experience at this point but that's that's where i want to go with the hobby yeah fox hunt that is uh, the official term is radio amateur radio direction finding ardf yeah and that's what i what i'm i'm doing with Normally five transmitters hidden in the forest, transmitting in a sort of round round robin fashion, and you have your receiver, and uh, it's it's <clears throat> very very nice for for non licensed people because all you need is to to take a receiver, borrow one, and be introduced uh, in instructed how to use it, and and then you can can go off and and find those transmitters and have fun. Yeah, that that sounds like a blast to me. We, I, um, I'm personally one that enjoys being out in the woods, so any excuse to good one for me. So excited to find if there are any clubs that do those, and if not, maybe be someone who gets that started. I think it's excellent that you mentioned that it's. Um something that non-amateurs or non-licensed uh, folks can get into and uh, direction finding is certainly an excellent thing for that because it is uh, it is uh, you can do it with a receiver so I think that brings up another good point too it is possible to listen to amateur radio operators talk if you're interested Michael has mentioned a couple of times short uh, a couple of times here shortwave uh, with a simple shortwave receiver now the the uh, That's the word I'm looking for. The receive filter, or the or the uh, maybe the bandwidth of the uh, receiver makes it difficult to. There's not a very narrow filter in it, so it makes it difficult to hear Morse code. And Morse code isn't. We've talked about that a lot. It's not a huge part of the hobby, but it is just one of these many aspects. But you can often tune around a shortwave receiver on these different high frequency bands and listen to amateurs talking if your uh, receiver has capability of doing sideband, uh, single sideband. Uh, you can also um, just get a, a scanner that's capable of VHF, UHF, and you can often uh, pick up local repeaters and things like that. And there's usually, uh, you know, the ARRL has um, band charts that tell you what frequencies are available to listen to, and uh, sites like Repeater Book and Art Pub and your local club sites will have lists of repeaters. Uh, and the ARRL will have like the national calling frequencies and that sort of thing. So um, there's a lot of space for people to tune around and listen before they ever get their license if they want to hear what hams are up to. On the uh, uh, thought of the shortwave receivers, uh, many of them that are in the that don't cost a whole lot, thirty to forty U.S. dollars will have a setting for single sideband or SSB. If they don't, another thing to look for is something called Beat Frequency Oscillator, BFO, 
which uh, uh, will also allow you to listen to uh, single sideband uh, transmissions and uh, CW uh, a little bit uh, easier. Uh, way back when, before I was licensed, I had a, a shortwave radio that had a BFO and it, it uh, opened up a whole, uh, whole new uh, avenue of listening. And it, it, it kept kept the interest and uh, up and because if you hear it without it, it just sounds like Donald Duck talking. And with it, you're able to uh, pull out uh, voices and hear some of the uh, fun stuff that people are talking about. So the first receiver I had was was a direct conversion receiver. I was given by my uncle, which was a kit of the German amateur radio club in the 80s somewhere and, and <clears throat> was for 20 meters for 14 megahertz and uh, there I could listen to, to Morse code which I wasn't able to decode at that time but also to single sideband uh, voice communication and could hear, hear stations all over Europe and I think some, some uh, further DX contacts but was interesting throw a piece of wire out the window and and get your feet wet um, I think it would be important for us to clarify too we keep throwing around uh, bands uh, you know 80 meters 40 meters 20 meters uh, two meters so on and so forth um, might be important to mention too that a lot of the different bands are uh, not only known by the frequency allocation, but also their wavelength. And that's what that meter uh, discussion is. So I, I wish we would have had a few more, you know, uh, deeper questions. Uh, we probably will get some deeper questions after uh, this uh, goes out. Uh, I'm sure there will be some. Uh, hopefully there'll be, if there's one person that, uh, becomes interested after after uh, this goes out on uh, HPR, I'll be very happy. But uh, I imagine there'll be quite a few others. Well, I think you're right. And that reminds me that we did not answer our second and final question, which is what happens if you operate without a license? And why should I get a license if I can operate without one? Well, I have some personal experience in this realm. Uh, part of where I became an amateur radio operator is I was building uh, transmitters. Before I knew what amateur radio was, I was building transmitters, and I clobbered a local FM station. Uh, it wasn't very high power, but I just happened to be close enough to them that uh, I walked all over their signal, and then I received a nasty gram in the mail, a letter from our fine friends at the FCC telling me I should stop brought it into work uh, where I was a bench tech and they told me all about amateur radio and how I could transmit legally and so that's how I jumped into it. Um, there are uh, people who do transmit illegally um, and by illegally I mean without a license. I, I think in the United States this concept of free banding is popular where they modify CB radios and end up transmitting on the amateur bands. Um, I'm not sure about all of the legal repercussions, and you guys might be able to speak to them, but I, I believe, um, from what I've seen, mostly people just get fined for operating without a license. Um, 
And I don't know if you can get a license if you are caught operating without a license. I would have to look at the laws, but um, I would definitely encourage people to get a license if they are going to transmit, because um, the fines are often pretty hefty. In addition to the fines, I think sometimes uh, the FCC has the authority to seize equipment, too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I believe that's true in, in the United States and other places. And what I tell folks is if they really want to know why would you want to have a license, if you don't have a license, most ham or amateur radio operators won't communicate with you. So, or if you make up something with the internet, if you give a, a fictitious call sign, I know within 10 seconds, 20 seconds, with the power of the internet, that uh, uh, you're not who, uh, who you uh, say you are, or what you're, uh, you know, the fake uh, station identification is is not uh, not good, and um, it, it takes the fun out of it. Once you have the license, you'd be surprised how many people um, uh, you you can you can talk to, and uh, uh, it just uh, it's well worth it to me. Uh, Plus, you know, I'm cheap. I don't want to give the government any money. I don't have to. Let's be fair. In the United States, it's 15 bucks. I think most people can scrape that together. <laughs> 15 bucks is a lot better. Paying 15 bucks for license is a lot better than however many thousands for a radio fine. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how, how big the, the, the fines or the, the charges are, but I think it's it can go up to into, into a real crime. So, and... To have your amateur radio license, it, it allows you to communicate with, uh, with other amateur radio operators and, and not with any, any other stations. And in German amateur radio law, it's explicitly stated that amateur radio, the, one of the main purposes of amateur radio is education and experimentation and so on. And to be able to do this, they acknowledge that you have to, uh, for experimentation, you have to be able to build your own transmitters and so on. And this is a privilege, which in my point of view is underemphasized in, in uh, most times, that we are the only radio service that is allowed to build their own transmitters and to care for complying with the regulations. But we, we can do it on our own. We can modify commercial equipment. We can build it completely by ourselves, design it. And no other service is allowed to do so. They all have to be, have to use certified equipment. And we are the only ones who can, can experiment legally on this, on this realm. Yeah, that's a good point. I uh, hadn't really thought of it that way, but, uh, um, but yeah, that the aspect of experimentation is unique in the, uh, in the amateur, uh, radio frequencies. And I guess just to clarify on this, I mean, the reason why there's a license necessary at all, I mean, organizations like the FCC in the U.S. and, and, and other organizations in other countries, I mean, they're charged with 
you know, making sure that the radio frequencies, the, the radio spectrum, if you will, is, you know, used as it, you know, is used useful for everybody and there's not, you know, abuse of that. And so, you know, there are a few uh, frequencies that are public frequencies that anybody can use without a license, but they're very limited. There's a limited amount of power that you can transmit and all of that. And then, of course, there's the license spectrum that commercial uh, people use. Uh, they pay a lot of money to gain access to the frequencies, and, and they use it with certified equipment. But then they've carved out these, you know, few frequencies, relatively small ranges of frequencies, but all over the, the spectrum that are allocated to amateur use. And if you get a, free, a license, then you can use those in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I think those are excellent points. Um, the, the the one of the major aspects of the hobby is definitely experimentation, and um, it's nice to have that. The other major aspect of the hobby is community building, um, which I think will sit well with listeners of Hacker Public Radio. In fact, I think we've got two things there: experimentation, real big for the community, and uh, community itself and goodwill. Um, and, and again, as John said, if, if you are making something up or you're just blathering on the radio, amateurs will tune away from you and not participate. Uh, we like to keep our bands, um, friendly and we like to keep them free of what we call QRM or malicious, uh, interference. So, uh, yeah, anybody that is thinking about utilizing the amateur bands without a license, I would just strongly encourage you to uh, study a little bit and uh, in the process of studying you'll definitely learn a lot uh, and go the legal route for sure. Okay guys I have gone through that thread and I don't see any other questions so um, I guess at this point uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. If any of you have any closing remarks please go ahead um, one thing I want to say is um, I'm pleased that so many people showed up, five, and we're all licensed. That's awesome. I didn't know there were any hams that were listening to uh, Hacker Public Radio, so this is great. Um, so thanks for showing up, and I would also ask the community, if you have any questions, uh, shoot us a message on the mailing list, or you can contact me directly. Um, you can find my contact information on any of my posts on the mailing list. Uh, ask us your questions. If we missed something, let us know. If you want to know about a particular mode of operation or you want to know more about radio theory or whatever, just uh, reach out. Or if you want to contribute with special knowledge, if there's some mode you, you like to do, you're <coughs> good at or you have special knowledge about, join in and, and share it. Uh, yeah, I, I echo all of those uh, sentiments. Um, I guess uh, just as a, in terms of wrapping things up, um, I mean, the two pieces of advice that I think I would offer to anybody that's thinking about getting an amateur radio license, and these have already been said. I'm just going to restate them. One, you know, go ahead and do it. I mean, you don't have to get it all figured out first. Just go ahead and, and uh, find some people to help you, find a testing session, and, uh, and dive in. And then the other thing is, uh, you know, find a club or find, um, you know, somebody that, that's licensed and uh, learn from them and, 
you'll uh, you'll get it all figured out in a pretty short order. And I have a few, uh, uh, a couple things. Uh, since you listen to Hacker Public Radio, you know about podcasts. Listen, just on in your podcatcher. If it has a search feature, search for Amateur Radio. Uh, there's some real good ones. There's one that is a uh, a uh, a gentleman. Uh, that uh, has participated in, uh, put out some shows, uh, K5TUX. He does a podcast called Linux in the Ham Shack. It has Linux, ham radio, amateur radio, excellent podcast. Search for those. If you already listen to podcasts, listen listen um, to a few more. There are some on uh, the uh, Twit network that's that can be good uh, at at times. It's both video, it's video and it, it it's good. Uh, um, yep, definitely post something in the uh, uh, Hacker Public Radio. You know, in the uh, uh, email stuff. Uh, I'm reachable uh, by my call sign. Um, if you look up my call sign and you send, uh, you, you take the time to figure out, um, how to do that. If you Google my call sign, KT4KB, you'll, you'll find a way to, to reach me. Um, I'll be glad to, to, to answer anything, uh, uh and, uh, that I know of. And uh, technical or untechnical, fun or, or not fun, and even some funny stories uh, about getting knocked across the room a few times. I'm glad you brought up the podcasts. Um, yeah, I listen to uh, Linux and the Ham Shack as well. It's a great podcast. And I'll plug one other um, that I have been listening to for about a year now, and that's Ham Radio 360. Uh, you just Google for Ham Radio 360. It's an excellent podcast, especially uh, especially for beginners, but uh, even seasoned uh, folks as well. Uh, I'm not associated with it at all, but I just want to make that plug. Okay, so thank you a lot for, for particip- participating, all of you. And I think there are many, many more hams in, in the community, and they they can participate here also. Shall we? Shall we try to find a more Europe-friendly uh, date for the next for the next session? I am definitely on board with that. I feel bad that Ken couldn't join us tonight, and since he is not here, and you guys brought up podcasts, I will do Ken's job for us right now. Uh, if you've ever thought about making a podcast, if you've ever thought about recording anything, and you're listening to Hacker Public Radio, this is the place to do it. Go listen to my podcasts or my episodes and listen to the horrible quality with which I produce them. I assure you, you can do better with a tin can and some string. Go out, find a topic, record something for us, submit it. It's super easy. We're a community that exists on podcasts created by our listeners, and we sure could use your podcasts as well. Thanks.
You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.